All right, today we're going to be diving into Hebrews chapter 9. And as we uh, dive through these verses, what we're going to see is that it talks a lot about the Old Testament tabernacle, uh, as well as the sacrifices and rituals that were performed there. And, and this temple, this tabernacle was set up when God had rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, and they're wandering through the wilderness, and God came and, and talked to them and gave them uh, guidance on how to set up this tent. And that became the place of dwelling, where when God's presence would descend, uh, he would descend and, and be in this temple, and that's where uh, God would abide with them, and that's where sacrifices were made to reconcile the people with him. And so what we're going to learn as we go through this passage today is that uh, the author of Hebrews is going to explain that that was intended, it was part of God's plan, but it was a temporary plan while he was waiting to fulfill his master plan, which we see fulfilled in Jesus. And so this temple and this tabernacle and the sacrifices were a foreshadowing of God's future and permanent plan for how people could draw near to God. And so we'll be looking at that in more detail, but let me begin by just reading through the full passage with you. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn uh, holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. All of these things uh, we can't speak of in detail. But these preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. Uh, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Uh, may God bless the reading of his word. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll start to unpack these one at a time. Uh, dear Lord, uh, we thank you for um, your word that you've given to us, and we thank you, Lord, that all of it is fruitful for us to learn about you and to grow as your disciples. I pray that as we open up uh, this passage that is talking about an Old Testament practice that may seem really foreign and distant to us, I pray that our hearts would be open to realize that there is uh, a definite and relevant teaching for us, even if it was an Old Testament practice, uh, there's so much that we can learn from this that you would have us understand so that we can learn more about you and your grace and your goodness and how you have uh, purposed things in a way that would draw us to yourself. So I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive and attentive, listening for the words that you would impress upon our hearts tonight. I pray that by your grace, you would speak through me uh, in a clear and articulate way to help people understand these truths. In your name we pray, amen. Um, <clears throat> kind of as a bit of a setup for this passage, um, I want to talk a little bit about where I grew up. Uh, for many of y'all, y'all know that I grew up in Texas. I uh, was born and raised there, and I have always said Texas is the best state in the country. It was deeply ingrained in me when I was growing up there. Uh, the longer I live here, the harder it is to remember why. Um, <laughs> 
the honest truth is Dallas is ugly, especially Dallas. It is ugly, flat, hot, and humid, and miserable. So there's really not much redeeming. Um, one thing that I do enjoy when I'm back there is driving around because their roads are fantastic. Um, they're smooth. The speed limits are much higher, like 80 is a fairly common speed limit in a lot of the highways. Uh, and not to point fingers or make any enemies, but I also enjoy the drivers. Like the drivers there know that the on-ramp is designed so you can get up to speed before you merge into traffic, uh, something that I don't find is so common here. Uh, so I really miss the highways, and I'm actually going to show you one particular highway my wife and I were talking about last time we went. This is the uh, High Five Interchange. It's the intersection of 75 and 635. Uh, all of those roads, roads are smooth. Uh, they are fast. They are efficient. Um, they had been doing the construction there. That used to be uh, an antiquated, like, 1960s exchange. Uh, it was not as easy to get through. A lot of bottlenecks. It was a bit of a nightmare. And so my last few years there, they were actually rebuilding this intersection to make what you see there. Um, and when they were rebuilding it, they had to put in place a lot of temporary roads to kind of help you circumnavigate around that intersection. And it was a bit of a headache. It was not ideal, but, but it served its purpose. And then once construction was finally complete, it was amazing. Because, man, you get on this thing and you can just fly through, even at peak hours. Like, it's just not a bottleneck. It's, it's really, really nice. Um, and so I miss the really nice roadways. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, this, this setup reminds me a lot of what the author is talking about in the passage today. See, when this setup was in construction, they had all the temporary roads. And, and it was a little bit of a difficulty, but, but really it, it, it provided a way to get around. But once the master intersection was complete, if you lived in Texas and you were still taking those side roads, I would have said, what are you doing? I mean, the side roads aren't bad, but there is a much better way now. And in the same way, as we look in this passage in Hebrews, the author is looking back at the Old Testament tabernacle system. And he's saying, hey, there was a purpose for that, but there's now a better way. God has actually fulfilled his master plan. The tabernacle was a temporary structure, just like the original roads that helped you serve and navigate. They were a temporary structure just intended to do the trick until the full final master plan could be complete. Now, for somebody visiting Texas uh, in the midst of construction, they might not have known what that plan looked like, and they might have just thought, this is what it is. It's tough to get around in Dallas. Um, but once it was complete, they could look back and say, oh, now I get it. The other roads were just a temporary means to get around, but this is what they were trying to do. And that's what the author's saying. There was a purpose for the temporary, but hey, let's look at what Jesus has come to do. That's the full master plan that God had. So with that, we're going to get to really dive in and look through this Old Testament system and see what does it teach us in terms about the Old Testament provision, how it was a means to draw near to God, but how it also was just a temporary plan foreshadowing the ultimate plan that God had in place through Jesus. Um, the author actually jumps right into the temple, but the temple was part of a bigger courtyard, the whole tabernacle area. So if y'all can flash the next slide, before we dive into the first verse, um, I want to actually go back one. Um, if you want to study and research this further, the tabernacle was described in Exodus chapters 25 through 27, and then the building of it happened in Exodus 36 through 38 and 40. And then all throughout Exodus and Leviticus, there are a number of places that refer to the rituals and things of that nature. But those are some references if you do want to go back and study this in more depth. So with that, the next slide, you'll see some pictures. Uh, in the very top is a big rectangle. Uh, it says American football field. That's about the size of American football field, and beneath it is the little rectangle. That would be the entire 
tabernacle as well as the surrounding courtyard. And you can see from the picture, the, the courtyard would have a fence all the way around it. Uh, there was an altar and some things that were in that outer courtyard, um, a bronze basin for ceremonial washings. Uh, but then where we're going to start today is in the, the, the actual tabernacle, which is the tent that's kind of in the, the back corner of that courtyard there. Um, we see in Hebrews 9, uh, verses 1 and 2, the author starts here and he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, and it's called the holy place. So he jumped straight into the temple. Um, it's worth noting that the, the, the tabernacle was covered. Um, they didn't have REI back then and Gore-Tex and things like that. It was a nomadic people, so they had to have a covering they could set up and take down. Uh, but So they used goat hair. Think about a lot of herdsmen. That would have been something they would have access to to build a thick enough covering to protect everything that was inside once it was constructed. So um, the later temples that were constructed were more ornate and more beautiful, probably from the, the external perspective. But I have to think it probably wasn't the most beautiful thing as you're walking up to it, even though some of the pieces inside were really ornate. But so it had a goat hair blanket that covered it as a tent. And then you got into the holy place. And the holy place was about 30 foot long, 15 foot wide, and 15 foot high. This is where the regular uh, ceremonial rituals would take place. And in that room, there was a, a lampstand. Uh, the lampstand, also called a menorah, uh, had one stem in the middle and then three arms coming off of each side for a total of seven lamps. And just practically speaking, they had to have the lamp in there because being covered in goat hair, there was not a lot of light coming through. So it was very dark inside, and they would have needed this to have light to perform the rituals. But they also kept this burning constantly, and so the uh, priest would go in day and night to trim the wicks and to add oil and to make sure that it kept uh, burning. And uh, most believe that the seven branches and the lamps symbolize the fullness of light uh, that's in Jesus Christ, who's, who's talked about as the light of the world. And so this was a, a picture of that or symbolic representation of Jesus who would be the light of the world. And then there's the table and the bread of presence. Um, every Sabbath, the priest would go in and put 12 loaves of bread. Uh, the 12 loaves both represented the 12 tribes. Uh, but they also represented God's provision. God had promised to provide for them as his people. And so there's an element of God's provision. That was also a foreshadowing of Jesus, who ultimately is the bread of life. The New Testament talks about Jesus as the bread of life, uh, meaning it's his provision that provides for us and sustains us, gives us the sustenance for an eternal unity with God. And so that was a great foreshadowing of Jesus. And then we have the golden altar of incense. Um, now, I'll add real quick, that um, the verses make it sound like the golden altar of incense was inside of the Holy of Holies. Um, there was definitely a strong correlation because the altar of incense, when the incense would be created, it would fill the inner Holy of Holies. But the actual physical location we see in other Old Testament references is um, listed as being out in that initial uh, room, the, the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. Um, this altar of incense, what they would do is they would take coals from the great sacrificial altar at the door of the tabernacle, and they would place them in the stand, and then they would put incense on top of it to produce a large amount of um, incense uh, and smoke. So that was two things. Number one, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, uh, but also, and importantly, it, it concealed God's presence. So when the priests walked in, they wouldn't see the presence of God. It shielded them from that. Now, this is an interesting thing to contemplate, this idea that there was a need to conceal the presence of God 
reminded them and reminds us just how great God's holiness was. Uh, We see throughout Scripture in the Old Testament that when people would encounter the presence of God, they would be stricken with fear and just the awe and the reverence of God and seeing how great His holiness was. In essence, in seeing God's holiness, they would realize just what a contrast there was between His holiness and us and our sinfulness. And that would create fear and a sense of brokenness. And you would constantly see them turning their face away and saying, you know, Lord, don't look upon me. I'm not worthy. There was just such an incredible reverence when they saw His holiness of how great God was. Um, as an example, when Moses went up onto the mountaintop, he asked at one point if he could see God's presence, and God says it covered him. They put him in a cleft of rock, and God covered him as he walked by, just so he could even be near God's presence. And when Moses came down off the mountain, just being in the presence of God was such an impact that he literally was glowing, and the people were afraid of Moses. So we see that as people encounter the holiness of God, it marks them in a way uh, that creates fear and reverence, because God is at such a contrast to us in our sinful state. Um, I would contend that all of us have a low view of God's holiness. Uh, It's hard for us to even imagine just how holy God is, and it's hard to appreciate how glorious his holiness is. Um, Often, as I'm talking with folks, especially uh, uh, non-Christians, and perhaps you've had somebody ask you this question if you're here and you're not a believer tonight, well, kind of ask, like, all right, if there was a scale and you had, like, murderers on this end and, and Jesus on this end, like, where would you put yourself? And I think our tendency is to think in terms of, like, all right, if this was a scale, like, here's the worst. I, I'm better than most. Like, I, I work hard. I do good things. So I'm probably on this end. Like, I know I'm not God. I know I'm not perfect. But, but we're, I'm much closer to him than I am to those people. I mean, those people are pretty awful. And I think that shows just how low our view of, of God is. If we were going to put that in a more proper context, what we would have to do is think about, all right, if this was the end of the scale where the worst of the worst of the worst is, like, we're here, and then Jesus... And God and his holiness, like somewhere at the North Pole, like in a whole different stratosphere. Like God's holiness is so vastly different than us. So even at our best, we are infinitely closer to the worst of people, more so than we are anywhere close to the presence of God and his holiness. Does that register? You tracking with me? So when we see the altar of incense, we see that they recognize, man, we need to conceal the presence of God. We are not worthy even to walk into his presence. So they wanted to hide the presence of God for their own safety. Um, we also see in this altar of incense that it's a symbol of prayer. Uh, Psalms 141.2, for example, says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So there are different places in scripture that will reference our prayers and uh, similar to the incense, this idea of lifting up and a pleasing, something that's pleasing to the Lord, and then also just recognizing his holiness. And then as we continue on, uh, Hebrews um, 9, verses 3 through 5, it says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Uh, Now, in the course of this actually being um, um, read or or preached the first time, it was a sermon, and so he was working through the entire sermon of Hebrews at one setting, which is why he couldn't dive into all of this in detail, and they would have been much more familiar with this tabernacle system. Uh, For us, these are the only verses I have. I'm not covering the whole thing, so I will dive in in a lot more detail, Um, and so we'll look at the curtain. The curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. 
It was made of twisted linen that was woven with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. They also had embroidered it with figures of cherubim. I'm a redneck. I don't do a lot of sewing, so these are foreign terms for me. Um, but the curtain was always closed. And once again, this, this idea was protecting people from the presence of God, um, protecting them so that they wouldn't be exposed to his holiness um, in, in a way that would be overwhelming to them. So that curtain was always closed. And then the Holy of Holies, that was the inner room. This is where the high priest would go in once a year making sacrifices on behalf of them and the people. It's the place where God's presence would descend and dwell with the people. Uh, and so this was a critical place, central to the nation of Israel and their relationship with God. Within that room, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark was made with acacia wood, and it was covered with gold, so this would have been a beautiful and ornate uh, thing. And inside of the covenant, there was a golden urn with manna. Um, manna, uh, when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, they were led out into the wilderness, and there wasn't a ready abundance of food. And so God, every morning, would miraculously put this manna on the ground, and it was a bread-like substance that they could eat and that they could live on, and it taught them that God would provide for them, that he was faithful and just and true to provide for them and that they could trust in him. And so putting it in the urn was a, a reminder to them of the way God had provided for them in the wilderness. Then there was Aaron's budded staff. Um, now, this story is in number 16 and 17. If you want to write that down and study it in more detail, I'm going to go through it uh, fairly quickly, but I do want to take a moment and pause on it because this is a pretty fascinating story. Aaron's budded staff. Uh, this all started when a handful of rebels challenged uh, Moses' unique authority that God had given him to lead the people of Israel as well as Aaron's authority as the high priest. So we see that... Um, in verses three through five, it says, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? This guy had a low view of God's holiness and a very high view of his holiness. He's saying, Moses, we don't need you. Aaron, we don't need you. We're all holy. We can dwell in God's presence. We don't need the sacrificial system. Now, when Moses heard this, Moses, who had a high view of God's holiness, he fell on his face and he said to Korah, the leader of this rebel group, and all of his company, he said, in the morning, the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So Moses kind of breaks down instantly, understanding like, whoa, lightning bolts are about to fly. Watch out. You are challenging God's holiness and you are elevating yourself. Man, none of us deserve to be in God's presence. So Moses had a proper understanding of God's holiness. Moses and Aaron uh, head into the temple and God appeared and he said that he was going to consume the rebels. So Moses heads back out to talk to everybody and he first of all says, first of all, everybody get away from the rebels just in case something happens. And he says, I tell you what, if these people live a long, healthy life, then you'll know that we were lying and that God didn't appoint us. However, if something, I don't know, say maybe the ground opens up and swallows them whole, then you'll know that God has appointed us and that they were rebelling against God. And in the story, the ground literally split open and swallowed the rebels and all who were with them, their families, their tents, everything gone in an instant. Now, I don't know about you, if I had been watching, I would have been thinking, okay, I'm done complaining, that was pretty amazing. God, you pick whoever you want. I'm with you. Uh, but interestingly, the people continued to complain against Moses and Aaron. And so God, in his anger and wrath, in uh, his wrath against their sinful and untrusting hearts, he unleashed a plague on the people. 
Now Moses and Aaron quickly moved to intercede, and Moses asked Aaron to create a bunch of incense, and he took the incense out, and basically as the plague was sweeping through, he got in between the plague and the people who weren't yet affected and interceded, saying, Lord, please don't, don't wipe them out. But before that point, some 14,700 people died. And because Aaron's priestly authority was challenged, the Lord finally, on the heels of that, after they had interceded in the incense, the Lord called to them and he said, I tell you what, gather the 12 tribes and get the head of each tribe to provide his staff. Write the name on the staff and then put it in front of the Holy of Holies overnight and I'll show you who I had chosen in the morning. And so in the morning they came forward and Aaron's staff had blossomed, budded, and produced almonds. This dead staff, not connected to any vine, had miraculously grown almonds overnight, and the people finally relented and said, okay, we trust that God has appointed Aaron. So what's fascinating is I was reading through this and thinking about the holiness that, that all of this is showing us about God and how holy he is. Uh, we see that Korah totally missed that. Remember, he said, for all in the congregation are holy. No, none in the congregation are holy, not even Moses or Aaron. We then see that God his purpose to draw us to himself, God went to, um, or as Moses said, should I say, he identified that the Lord will show who is his and will bring him near to him, saying, God's gonna pick who he's gonna pick, and it's God's grace that draws us near. Don't think that that's something you've earned. Let's respect God and his holiness and recognize it's his grace that draws us near. And then we see that God orchestrates the plan for redemption and then invites us into that. Uh, Moses didn't come to God and say, hey, I've got this plan for how we can kind of put relationship back together with this rebellious people. God came to Moses and said, I have a plan and a purpose, and here's what I want it to look like. So the other thing that we then see in the Ark of the Covenant is the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Um, this is really critical to have in the proper context as well, because I think this is something that so often people get wrong. Um, often people think about, well, Christianity, I don't know, it seems burdensome. You've got all these things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do so you can earn God's favor. It all started with the Ten Commandments. Uh, but that's a really critical gospel distortion that we need to talk through. Uh, see, it's important to remember God had shown up seeing that the Israelites were in oppression in Egypt, and God had shown his favor by redeeming and rescuing them. And when he redeemed and rescued them out of Egypt, uh, they hadn't won his favor yet. As a matter of fact, many of them were harboring Egyptian idols as God was rescuing them, meaning they were still worshiping idols from Egypt instead of worshiping God. And yet God rescued them, he brought them out, and then he gets them in the wilderness and he takes Moses up on the mountain and basically was saying, look, because of what I've done, because I have already shown you my grace, if you want to worship me as Lord, then here's how. Walk in obedience to these things. And you know what? I've written these commands, not just to give you a big list of what to do and not to do, but I want to be able to set you apart. I want you to be marked as my people, and this is how life will go best for you. If you're following my commands, this is where you'll find the most joy. I've set this up so that you can experience a full and abundant life. But if you want to choose rebellion, then, then, then go for it. But that's not my people. My people are going to worship and honor me. So God's gift of the Ten Commandments was not a big list of do's and don'ts so people could earn his favor. It was a worshipful response to the fact he had already shown them favor. Are you tracking with me? So when we see the Ten Commandments, that would have been a great reminder for them that God had been gracious and shown them their favor, shown the people of Israel God's favor in drawing them out. That would have been a reminder to them and a reminder that God had called them to respond with worship in obedience. Then we see that on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the cherubim of glory. Um, 
It says that they hovered over the mercy seat facing each other, and it's worth noting they're called the cherubim of glory, not because of their glory, but because they uh, basically framed where God would come and sit, and it was God's glory, God's glory, that would descend and sit on the Ark of the Covenant. And so the cherubim of glory were, were talking about God's glory and the place that it would come and dwell. And God's presence would come and sit on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid of the Ark. It was a golden slab, also called the atonement cover. Um, it's the earthly counterpart to the throne of grace that's in heaven. Uh, it's where the priest would come and sprinkle blood on behalf of his sins and the sins of Israel. Um, what's key about the mercy seat is to realize that, that this is where God would come and extend mercy to the people. His plan was he wanted to draw them to himself. We often tend to think about it in Revelations, it talks about the throne of judgment. I think a lot of people, even Christians, are really fearful, like, oh, I gotta come before God in, in judgment. Uh, but for those that he's chosen and redeemed, uh, we're actually coming before him to celebrate the grace he's extended to us. And in this case, the people were coming forward and he had provided a means of mercy to, 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 to allow them to draw into his presence through the sacrificial system. And so this was actually where they stepped forward and experienced God's mercy over them, not a harsh place of judgment against them. Um, this kind of brings up the notion of mercy and grace and how the Old Testament tabernacle system uh, was a little bit more in the realm of mercy, whereas God's final plan was in grace. And to distinguish the two, um, I actually was walking through this with my son the other day, my four-year-old son, Gideon, precious boy, but like all precious boys and precious girls, uh, they are sinful at times. And he had uh, made the very sinful choice of getting angry at Kami, my wife, and yelling at her and hitting at her because of something. I don't remember what. And we have a standing rule that if he ever uh, chooses a sinful uh, choice of hitting and yelling at mom, that when I get home, he gets a spanking from me in addition to whatever punishment he receives from mom. And uh, that day I'd come home and we had had this long talk and I just really sensed that he had very quickly realized what he had done was sinful and wrong and he had on his own volition gone to Kami to make restitution and put their hearts back together. And, and so he had really worked through a proper uh, move of repentance and whatnot and working for reconciliation. And so I just, that particular day I felt like, you know what, I, I think we don't need the spanking. I think he's got the lesson. So I talked through all this with him. I said, you know what, son? I know that we generally have a spanking after you've made that type of sinful choice, but today I'm, I'm not gonna give you a spanking. I was like, do you know what that, that is? Do you know what we call that? He was like, is that grace? I was like, actually, that's mercy. So mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. Grace would be if I then said, let's give you something you don't deserve, a special blessing, let's go get ice cream. Like, that's above and beyond a blessing. You don't even deserve this, but I'm gonna give it to you anyways. I told him, we're not going to do ice cream. Let's focus on mercy today. Um, just appreciate that you're not getting your butt whooped right now. Um, but it was a nice teachable moment. He appreciated it, and he understood, wow, Dad's withholding a judgment against me. And, and in the Old Testament tabernacle system, at least as I'm wrapping my brain around it, certainly there was a lot of God's grace in their lives, but, but that really was a sign of his mercy. He was saying, I'm going to provide a means, and instead of pouring my wrath against you, I'm going to provide another place where I can pour out that wrath so you can draw into my presence. But it wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't perfected yet. The fullness of his grace we see in the throne of grace, which is where Jesus now sits. And Jesus is now interceding on our behalf, saying, hey, not, not only can you just kind of partially draw into his presence and there's a degree of restoration, you now have full access. I have paved the way so you can dwell in the presence and live eternally with God forever. That is not just a withholding of judgment, like against the Israelites, but it is actually opening up of a full blessing we do not deserve. So we learn a lot from these pieces and uh, this Old Testament system and the mercy seat. 
And then we look at Hebrews 9, 6. It says, these preparations thus been, uh, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. So we see the ritual duties. We've kind of looked at the elements in the tabernacle. Now he's going to talk about the, the ceremonies that are attached to it. In the outer room is where the ordinary priest would regularly go in and carry out the ritual duties. Some of these we've talked about. Daily, they would go in and trim the wicks and add oil to the lamps to keep them burning. Um, weekly, they would go in and put the fresh loaves, and, and then when they were t- pulling out the old loaves, they would eat those. Uh, and then there were also some, some regular daily sacrifices that they would do, but these are all just ritual duties that any of the priests could do. And then we go to Hebrews 9, 7. It says, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So this is referring to the high priestly duties, which initially was Aaron. Uh, No one except the high priest was admitted, uh, allowed to enter into that second, the Holy of Holies. And even when he went in, it was only if he had a blood sacrifice paving the way. Uh, When he would go in each year, that one day each year was the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. Um, and on that day of atonement, he would first go in with the blood of a bull, which had been sacrificed, and that would be a sin offering for he and his family. Then he would go out and he would prepare sacrifices of a goat, and as that was slaughtered, he would bring the blood in and offer that up for the unintentional sins of the people. And both of those would get sprinkled on the mercy seat uh, there as an offering before the Lord. Now, the fact that fresh blood had to be shed year by year shows that this was... um, a temporary and ultimately not effective system. Like it wasn't fulfilling the full plan that God intended of a perfect restoration. It was a broken restoration. It worked, but, but not permanently. That's why they had to repeat it every year. Now, in looking at the sacrificial system, this kind of spells out for us the idea of propitiation. Um, propitiation is basically um, this idea that wrath, because God is a just and holy God, he is going to pour out wrath against sin, which... But scripture says that the wages of sin is death, and in his justice, God has to see that penalty carried out. However, with his, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament sacrificial system, what he said is, hey, the wrath has to be poured out, but instead of pouring it out on you, I will pour it out on these animals as they're sacrificed. They will carry the full weight of sin and the full wrath that I have against that sin so that you can be spared, and he showed mercy in that way. And then in the New Testament, as we look at Jesus, God has said, hey, I'm going to pour out my wrath, but instead of pouring it out on you, I've sent a perfect sacrifice, Jesus. And so all of God's wrath against our sin was poured out against Jesus as he died on the cross and his blood was shed. And then as Jesus rose, conquering death, we now have a means that, that have provided an avenue so that we can be restored and brought back into relationship with God. So that's the idea of propitiation. The wrath is poured out, but it's directed onto something else instead of onto us. So then we get into Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verses 8 through the first part of uh, verse 9. It says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. So as the author was communicating this, uh, this is a good indication that the temple was still standing. It hadn't been destroyed yet. And so the author is saying, hey, um, as long as the holy place is open, um, uh, you, you 
might be tempted to go back there, but don't because God has now, through Jesus, fulfilled the more perfect way. So that was symbolic for their present age. It was still standing. It hadn't been wiped out, but it was his warning. Hey, don't go back to that system. We've now seen, and in light of the analogy of the Texas interchange, those were the temporary roadways. God has a permanent uh, means established for how we can draw near to him, and it's more efficient. We don't need those old ways. There's a better way now. So then he jumps into verse, the second part of verse 9 and verse 10, and he says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What he's saying is all these Old Testament sacrifices in the tabernacle system, uh, they were there and they had their value, and, uh, but, but they couldn't perfect our conscience. They couldn't perfect our heart. They were more ceremonial washings. Uh, the sacrifices and rituals, they cleanse people but temporarily. That's why there had to be bloodshed on a regular basis. So this temporary but not permanent solution is what he was warning them against. And he was trying to say, hey, remember, Jesus is coming, so we now have the final plan. Uh, as one commentary said, uh, the assertion that the regular, uh, excuse me, the regulations were imposed or enforced until the time of Reformation uh, that is, until the day when everything would be put right and the shadow replaced by the substance. That, that phrasing is a great way to think about it. Uh, it had its place, but it was a shadow. It was only a partial uh, fulfillment to the ultimate plan that God had in mind through Jesus. That was the substance. That's what God really wanted in the ultimate fulfillment of his plan. And that reformation he's talking about, as I've said, that was Jesus. Uh, when Jesus came and died and buried and rose again, conquering death, that put the whole uh, Old Testament sacrificial system uh, into a place where it was no longer relevant. He totally reformed that and brought forward the full plan that God had intended, a more perfect and permanent plan. Jesus didn't have to die again and again. It was one time and it was done. It was a, a perfect solution to our brokenness. So the author in Hebrews is reminding his listeners there's a better way now. And as we look at the tabernacle in Jesus, we, we definitely see some key differences, which I'll highlight for you guys. Uh, number one, the tabernacle was earthly. Uh, it was literally here on earth. It was a place that men built, whereas Jesus is now at the heavenly throne room, sitting at God's right hand. And so he has a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly temple, the fulfillment of what God had intended, uh, that, that Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowing the heavenly throne room. We see that the tabernacle dealt uh, with external um, in Hebrews 9.9, 9, it said, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What he's saying, it dealt with external, it washed, but it didn't really get to the heart. Whereas Hebrews 9.14 that Pastor Aaron will be preaching on next week, it shows that Jesus brings the internal picture into to play. It said, it cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus gets into the heart and the internal issues that are the real issue. We see that the tabernacle was temporary in nature. Hebrews 9.10 said they were regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Well, that time of Reformation when Jesus came and redefined the whole system. And we see in Hebrews 9.12 that Jesus is that permanent uh, structure. Jesus secures an eternal redemption, as it says in Hebrews 9.12. So there's some key differences between the Old Testament as, as just a shadow of the substance that was to come in Jesus when he fulfilled that plan. But while they were different, the Old Testament and Jesus, the, the, the tabernacle system and Jesus is the final sacrifice, there are actually also some very strong similarities and truths that we see in both that we need to remember. Number one, we see in both of these reminders that God is holy, infinitely more holy than we can begin to appreciate 
The Old Testament ceremonial washings, the incense, the sacrifices, all of those were a reminder of God's holiness. Uh, Jesus, the life he lived, uh, as he lived a perfect life, and as he continually offered up prayers before the Lord and worshiped the Lord and literally obeyed the Lord even to the point of death on the cross, shows a complete reverence and worship of a holy God. It was clear that Jesus worshiped a holy God. We see that man is sinful. Um, the tabernacle and all the elements in it were a daily reminder of man's sinfulness. Uh, it reminded the people that they couldn't draw near to the presence of God unless they wanted to risk losing their life. Uh, their sin created a gap that, that made them unworthy to enter God's presence. Um, and so unless there was the blood uh, of the animals paving the way, the men were literally at risk of losing their lives if they tried to draw into God's presence. Man is sinful. In our sinfulness, uh, Jesus is a reminder of that as well because we see that his death on the cross, our sin put Jesus on the cross. If it wasn't for Jesus on the cross, we wouldn't have the means to draw into God's presence. But Jesus died as a reminder that we're sinful and that he has taken the penalty for our sin. Another thing we see in both of these structures was that God initiates. As I said earlier, um, God initiated the means for the Israelites. Uh, he's the one that brought to them the plan of the tabernacle and the sacrifices so that they could have this degree of restoration where they could draw into God's presence. God initiated all of that. Similarly, God initiated the means for us. He had a plan for how we could be drawn back into his presence, and that was through Jesus. And then we also see that God provides uh, not only did he have the plan, but he then provided the means to make it happen. And so he provided the animals that could be sacrificed with that uh, taking our place so God's wrath could be poured out in the animals instead of the Israelites. And then for us, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. God has provided Jesus as a means for us to have an ultimate restoration through his death and resurrection. Church, as we think about this, the fact that God's holy and we're sinful and we are so undeserving, again, think about how vastly superior God's holiness is and how we are infinitely closer to the worst of people, uh, more so than we are close to God and his holiness. And as we appreciate how holy and distinct uh, and separate from us God is in our sinfulness, we can revel in the fact that God initiates us and provides the means so that we can draw close to him. Church, this is great news for us to celebrate, uh, but as a means of just practical application, as I was wrestling through this, I had to ask the question, um, if God's wanting us to draw near, why at times does he feel so distant? It raises the question, is God distant? Does he just disappear sometimes and leave us on our own? Um, I think depending on where you stand, this has a couple of different uh, answers. Um, if you're not a Christian and you're saying, man, God feels distant, I have to be honest and say, there's a reason for that. In your case, uh, God is distant, it, it, at least in the sense that uh, there is a brokenness in your relationship that hasn't been mended yet. Uh, there is a gap, a, a, a chasm, and you can't overcome it. Um, scripture actually talks about those that um, have not chosen God as their Lord and Savior are enemies of God. And you might be thinking, well, hold on, I'm not an enemy of God. I just don't know yet. I'm, I'm still figuring this out. Know that a non-decision, not choosing to worship and honor God as Lord and Savior, puts you, at least as Scripture says, as an enemy of God. But the good news is, God is beckoning you to draw near. Uh, Christ said, love your enemies, and he was the ultimate display of that, dying on the cross for people so that they could be drawn back into relationship with him. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is an invitation to you to say, hey, you don't need to stay outside of the, the courtyard. God is beckoning you to draw into his presence, and he has provided the means so that you can do that. So for those of you that are Christian, what about you when God seems distant? Is he? 
the, the, the technical answer is no. Because you have acknowledged Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Scripture says that God gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal, a promise. We're kind of in the already not yet. We've experienced God's grace, but we haven't been fully restored in heaven. And so until that day, God's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal. So literally, as we think about a triune God, meaning there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, uh, God is living within us in the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So he is present. He is within us. He isn't distant. He is there but sometimes I know he still feels distant. And if you feel that way, you're not alone. I think we all feel that at some point or another. Um, if you are a Christian and God feels distant, this can often be because of several reasons. Number one, it might be because there's sin. Uh, if you are walking in sin and not surrendering that to the Lord and you're holding on to it or guarding it, um, that'll break fellowship and relationships. So there might be a reason he feels distant because there's a broken relationship. You need to mend by confessing and putting your sin before the Lord. Uh, it may be because you're suffering due to sin that's been committed against you. Uh, man, it is hard when you're suffering under sin committed by others and you're feeling the weight of that or, or been hurt by that. And so that might be just a reality that God feels distant as you're suffering in this broken world. Or it may just be that there's a hard season of life. No one's sinned against you. You haven't sinned, but it's just a hard season of life. Uh, we think about Job in the Old Testament. He hadn't done anything wrong, but yet God allowed a lot of affliction and God seemed very distant. And Job watched a lot of his life get stripped away from him. Um, but that doesn't mean God isn't present. It just means he seems distant. So the question is, what do we do in those times? Whatever reason you're suffering, what do we do when God seems distant or when we're suffering in those ways? Um, I think Psalms has a lot to teach us. There's a lot of songs of lament and you see them wrestling with, Lord, why do you seem distant? And um, my first encouragement from the Psalms would be, seek the Lord. Psalms 27, 8 and 9 says, you have said, seek my face. So my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Um, when we feel distant, we see it again and again in the Psalms, this begging out, Lord, please do not hide your face from me. I'm seeking you with my whole heart, and I think that should be our response. Um, I would encourage you to seek the Lord by immersing yourself in his word. Seek the Lord by meditating on his promises and by the gospel of grace. Uh, seek the Lord through prayer, and seek the Lord through fellowship with other believers who can minister to you with God's word. I would also encourage you then to wait for the Lord. We see a number of verses in Psalms where it talks about waiting. They've cried out, they're seeking the Lord, and now they're just waiting. Psalms 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalms chapter 40, verses one through three says, I waited patiently for the Lord. This is King David talking. We don't know if that patiently was a short time or a long time, but he waited patiently. It says, then he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And then a little later, he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I find that last piece really interesting because um, I would say it's easy to say God's a good God when everything in your life is going well. But maybe you've experienced this. When the non-Christians around you see you suffering, and you're waiting patiently on the Lord, and you're still honoring the Lord, and you're still communicating your trust in the Lord, even when he seems distant, that has a whole different impact on people that are watching. 
Uh, I know in my life, that's when non-Christians have kind of tend to look up the most, like, wow, you're still honoring and worshiping him. Like, seeing people suffer in a way that is honoring God, for some reason, tends to grab people's attention. And we see here from scriptures that, that David makes the comment that, hey, um, many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. So even if we don't always understand it, church, I encourage you to, to seek the Lord and then wait for the Lord, because often he'll use that as a time where his glory is displayed. Don't let your impatience cause you to doubt God's goodness or to turn bitter or to turn to sinful escape. And that leads me to the third point. Um, When God seems distant, we really have to guard against the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3, uh, verses 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, there are a number of pitfalls that we probably need to guard against in terms of the deceitfulness of sin, but, but I feel like there are a couple that are especially relevant when we think about what we're learning in this Old Testament tabernacle system and Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan. I think one of the first key pitfalls we have to look out for is a works-based response. If God feels distance and we start to feel tempted by the enemy to, to, to question God, we can easily turn to a works-based response. This idea that, well, man, Maybe God's distant because I'm not, I'm not doing good enough. Maybe I need to do more. Maybe I need to work harder. Maybe I need to, to or, or do less of the bad stuff. Whatever it is, maybe I just need to work more to earn God's favor. And to that, I would say, remember, God has already shown us his favor when Jesus came and died on the cross. God has already extended grace to us, invited us into his presence. So his distance isn't because we need to work harder and do more. Um, Certainly, if there's sin, we need to address that, Um, but it's not a matter of if we work harder, we do more good things, then we'll have God's favor. We already have God's favor. One area where I feel like I see this the most in in my experience is often people will come in to want to talk and um, seek counsel or get help. We'll kind of walk through stuff with them, and then often as we're kind of finishing up, it'll take a weird turn. We'll say, man, thank you so much. I'm grateful. You know what? I know I should be going to church more, and I promise I'm going to start coming more. I know I need that. Or, or man, I know I haven't been serving. There's been a, oh, there's been a lot, but I, I know I'll start serving more. Uh, and, and often it has this twinge of, I know you just spent a lot of time with me. I know I've been a burden. So you know what? I'll do more. I'll uphold my end of the bargain better. Like, I'll work more. And it just breaks my heart. I always want to say, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe God anything. If they had a different response, it could look totally different. Like if somebody was sitting with me and we'd walk through stuff and they said, man, I am so moved by God's grace. And you know what? I I just, I want to worship God. I'm so overwhelmed with his goodness and I want to show others his goodness. And I'm realizing he's given me gifts. And you know what? I want to use them to serve the body because other people might be hurting like me. And I just would love to serve in any way I can. How can I help? That's a total different response. That's a response of worship. But when it's coming out of obligation and duty and trying to earn a blessing or earn their keep for the blessing God's already given them, it's just an ugly distortion. That's not what God's calling for. He wants us to respond in worship. So we need to guard against a work-based response. We also need to guard against penance, a penance-based response. Penance would be beating yourself up. You need to feel the weight of your sin. Uh, And this becomes difficult. Hear me, we should feel the weight of our sin in the sense that we should know our sin put Jesus on the cross but we don't need to relive the suffering Jesus has already lived on our behalf. We should recognize Jesus has already suffered and be moved by, by a glorious response to worship. Uh, but beating ourselves for something that Jesus has already died for uh, isn't healthy. Um, when I think about penance, I always my mind first goes to Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the monks. They would chant and then smack themselves on the head with a, a big plank of wood. 
Uh, and that was a very literal way that you would do penance. But, but this actually happens in really, um, forgive my wording here, if I don't want to offend anybody, but in really gross ways. Uh, in the Philippines, for example, uh, every Easter, people will walk down the streets with these things beating their backs until they bleed, wanting to suffer like Jesus who was flogged. And then they literally will have many of them crucified. They will willingly submit themselves to be crucified so that they can suffer. And, and it's, they, it's called the mortification of the flesh. It's their attempt to ask Jesus for forgiveness. And what it really says is, Lord, I'm suffering like you did, so will you please forgive me? Um, but it's a gross distortion of the gospel. Jesus has already suffered. We don't need to suffer. That's why Jesus suffered. And in both the works-based and the penance-based, they really... Um, they really spit in the face of what God has done, what Jesus has done. Works base says, Jesus didn't need to die. I got this covered. I can do this. I can do this. And it, it dismisses the work God has done. A penance base says, man, Jesus died, but it wasn't good enough. He needs my help. I need to suffer too. And both of those grossly dismiss the work God's already done, that Jesus has done on the cross, totally paving the way and inviting us into God's presence without having to earn it, without having to suffer more, and so we have to guard against these potential pitfalls that we can fall into. Now, certainly I've shared some extreme cases, uh, especially in the penance. I know none of us are looking to go get crucified. But the truth is, I think all of us at some point or another probably fall into some degree of feeling like we need to suffer more. Um, man, I, I don't feel like it's breaking my heart enough. I need to suffer more before I can move forward. Um, Man, I would just encourage you to recognize Jesus has already paid the price. And so instead, move forward rejoicing in the work that he's done. Another pitfall to worry about uh, and to safeguard against is self-destruction. Um, this is another one that I have definitely seen again and again, and it's an easy one for the enemy to come along and say, you know what? You're right. You don't deserve God's grace, and you don't need to beat yourself up because it's not going to matter, and you don't need to work harder because you can't be good enough. You just aren't worthy of it. And people will often, in the weight of that, turn to some destructive sinful pattern to escape the pain. Or they'll just flat out dive into it to prove to everyone else, see, I'm not worth it. Just leave me alone. I can't be good enough. There's no way God could love somebody as wretched as me. And church, I just want to say that's a lie from the enemy. Nobody is unlovable. Jesus' love and grace is good enough to cover anyone who's willing to come to him and surrender to him as Lord and Savior. So don't let uh, the enemy plant that lie that it's not worth it and that you should just go ahead and self-destruct. Guard against those lies. Church, God's made it possible for all of us to be restored and drawn to him. God wants to draw us to himself. For those of you who are not Christians, it's kind of like you're choosing to stand outside the tabernacle while God's presence is there. And he's saying, hey, I've made the means. They're the provision. Like, come on in. I want you to be with me. So my invitation to you would be to recognize that God's opened up access. He's inviting you in. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. How are you going to respond? Are you going to let him be Lord of your life? Are you going to let him draw you into his presence? Or are you going to choose to stand in the courtyard or outside the courtyard and stand as an enemy of the Lord? For those of you who are already Christians, I have to ask, are you taking advantage of the access that Jesus has afforded you to the Lord? Are you drawing near to God? Are you enjoying his presence and abiding with him? When I was working through this and thinking about it, you know, in response to such a costly and beautiful grace that God has extended to us through Jesus, it doesn't make sense to feel enslaved by a works-based theology. It doesn't make sense to be enslaved by a penance-based theology where we're beating ourselves up when Jesus has already died on our behalf. It doesn't make sense to turn your back and self-destruct and to just 
run headlong into to destroying yourself. Church, the only response that makes sense is for us to be overwhelmed with gratitude for the work that God has done and for the means that he's provided for us through Jesus. The only response is to re- respond in worship and choosing to be obedient to God. The only response that makes sense is to draw near and to walk in dependence with him. My hope is that y'all will all take that to heart and that you would respond and draw near in that way. And on that point, we're gonna go ahead and take time now. We're gonna respond in worship. Uh, We're gonna enjoy worshiping in several different ways. First and foremost, through offering. Um, And so if the financial stewards will come forward and begin to pass the buckets. um, I want you to know if if you're visiting, you're not a believer, you're under no obligation. This comes back to um, God is giving us an opportunity to respond in worship. He's Lord of our life. He's blessed us with all of our resources. So this is a way that, that we like to respond saying, Lord, we know you're Lord. We know these are gifts you've entrusted to us, and we want to offer them back to you to further the work of the ministry so that more can know about you. So if you would like to give, you're welcome, but no one is under any obligation. As they pass the buckets, I want to share some questions, some discussion questions that hopefully you can chew on, and I would encourage you if you're in a community group uh, for y'all to wrestle through these together. The first question, which pitfalls are you most prone to fall into in response to sin in your life or when God feels distant? Are you prone towards a works-based response, a penance-based response, or self-destruction? It might be a little of all of those, and if so, in what ways? Help unpack that with one another. Then talk about uh, question number two, how do those responses distort and deny the gospel of grace offered through Jesus? And then lastly, what would a more gospel-centered response to sin in your life look like? Church, I know it is hard to lay yourself bare in front of others and to talk about distortions you may be living under, but if you're not honest with those, the people around you can't combat those lies with the truth of the gospel. So my encouragement is that you would be candid and open and honest, knowing that the brothers and sisters around you aren't there to judge you, they're there to affirm you with the gospel of truth, to combat the lies of the enemy. So my encouragement is you would really tackle those questions honestly and transparently. And then as some prayer points, pray that God would magnify your understanding of his glory and grace. Pray that he would expose any unhealthy ways you respond to sin in your own life and pray that God would teach you how to draw near to him by the grace of Jesus through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Those questions and prayer points are all in your hand, uh, your, your handouts that you received on the way in. So uh, if you didn't have time to write them down, just know that they're already written down for you. The next way that we're gonna respond is uh, through the taking of communion. And when we take communion, it is a very, very clear reminder of the great work Jesus did on the cross. When we take the bread, it's a reminder that his body was broken, so ours doesn't have to be. And as we dip it in the juice or the wine for your conscience, it's a reminder that his blood was shed as a means to provide a a, a way for us to be restored to God. God pouring his wrath out on Jesus instead of on us. And Jesus rising again, conquering death, uh, has provided the means that we can draw near to God now. And so when we take communion, it's a vivid picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And then um, as we're taking communion, the band will be leading us in songs as another means of worship. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'll pray, and then you can come forward and take communion as you're ready. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that indeed you would magnify our understanding of how glorious your holiness is. I pray that we would have a proper fear and reverence before you and that as we do, that you would expose any unhealthy ways that we've responded to sin in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that ultimately you would help us draw near to you. And that as we recognize the provision you've made so that we can draw near, that we would celebrate and worship you in your glorious grace. In your name we pray. Amen.